Hello, and welcome to Stranger Stopping Strangers, podcast 46. A big welcome back to anybody's returning, and thanks for stopping in to anybody who's new this week. Well, I have to say, the podcast has gotten a little bit off its usual rotation, and this, of course, is in honor of the days between. My last podcast with Gerilyn was put up on August 1st, the anniversary of Jerry's birthday, 75 years, and today's is going up on August 9th, which is the anniversary of his passing 22 years ago. So, you know, just a moment for lots of love for Jerry. You know, I think we can all agree that um, we love you more than words could tell. So the guest on this week's podcast is Sam Hirsch. And he is a man that many of us have seen, and some of us are lucky enough to have met and know. He is a rail rider, and uh, he gets to as many shows as he can. We've seen him at the Cap, at the Brooklyn Bowl, and really all over the place, front and center in the streams with his big smile and his shades and uh, dancing real big and, I mean, just so much fun. So Sam is the man who actually out here on the East Coast has brought back the produce stickers. There's some real fun stories in the podcast about that. The first time I met him, I came home with a bright orange juicy sticker, which is still hanging around with my modern day memorabilia. Throughout the podcast, Sam shares his stories from his early days in the late 80s, early 90s, a tour, and uh, just everything that led him to this day. You know, in listening to the conversation and making the podcast, it just reaffirmed that Sam is just a man with so much enthusiasm that it's so infectious. He's got so much love for the community and just getting involved and just a really great time getting a chance to talk to him and just makes me wish that tonight I could go shake it side by side with all the lights and the music and the magic all around. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast as much as we enjoyed making it and I will catch you soon. Welcome to Strangers Stopping Strangers. Thanks for having me, Stace. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited about this because uh, we've seen each other around and we've now, you know, chatted and gotten to know each other. But but you're like a man on the scene. I mean, I think so many people are going to be excited to hear, you know, your backstory and, and a bit about you because, um, you know, you're such a vibrant part of the community. And uh, I consider this podcast, you know, a, a real coup for me to uh, to get you on. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. It's just as exciting for me to talk to you. It's always fun when I, um, whether I see you on social media or whether I'm seeing you at the shows and we're dancing side by side, it's always great to see. And um, I appreciate what you said. You know, I love being part of the scene. I love the camaraderie from everyone. I thought I'd start by like just telling a little bit about like my background with the Grateful Dead and how I got started and how I got turned on to the music, which was basically when I was about 16 years old. You know, I was in high school and young buck, you know, just starting to, you know, it's listen to music and I was listening to more of rock and roll. I was into like um, Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest and, and Maiden and that sort of stuff, you know, young rock and roll stuff. For, uh, it was perfect for like a young guy of my age, 16, come of age and everything like that. And uh, then my friend, I met my friend Scott in school and he was like, hey, let's go see the Grateful Dead play. And I didn't really know anything about the music. And 
there we were. So we bought some tickets to see the Grateful Dead. I think we got two tickets at first. They did a five-show run um, circa 87 at Madison Square Garden. And I remember going to the first show with them. We were partying outside a little bit and before the show, getting prepped up for it. And I remember going in early. And we had, like, you know, nosebleed seat up in the garden. And I remember walking around, like, behind stage and looking down. And I can remember, like, people waving to us from the stage. And my friend being all excited, like, He's like, you don't even know who that was that you just waved at. That's Bob Weir. He, he's one of the leaders in the band. And I was just like, okay, that's great. You know, like I didn't get as excited as him because I wasn't turned on to it yet. But it was cool and stuff in later years. I remember that. And then we sat down and I remember the music start, starting to start. And we weren't feeling too much from partying. So we partied a little bit more. And then the music came on and I was just taking it in, you know, looking around, hearing the music. I remember the garden was like kind of dark and a little seedy upstairs and it was packed wall to wall. I mean, that's it so many big... people. How many, how many people do the garden have? I mean, what do they hold? I mean, it's, I'm not sure exactly, but, but I just remember like the place is filled like everywhere, like out in the hallways with the spinners. I mean, it was sold out, so to speak. Yeah, that place was um, enormous. I, it was enormous. And like, like I said, it was, I remember like being like, dark up there and stuff a little bit too. It's just my memories. And to make a long story short, like, or shorten it a little bit, it was good, but I didn't have any experience with it. And, like, I was overwhelmed as a 16-year-old. And then it started, the partying took, you know, took its hold on me. And, and I had, like, this psychedelic roar coming on to me. And I was all right for a little while up until, like, space came. And it started to get a little heavy. And I was wondering, like, what's going on here? Is this, like, a cult? And, like, everybody's on the same level and, like, doing this. And I got a little freaked out. I turned to my friend. I'm like, hey, listen, I got to, like, leave a little bit and get some air. And then we left the show. My first show, I actually left. And... When I got outside, I felt better. I was like, let's go in. He's like, no, it's a little heavy for me, too. Let's leave. And we had tickets to come back again. And then we did. We came back like two days later, and it was on. The second show, I got it. I had a great time. I listened to music, and I felt the connection. And then I got, like, everyone's dancing, and I understood it better. And, like, I was a deadhead. That, that sealed the fate for me. I was fully in tune to everything. I got to feel some of the magic that night and the music, and from there it was on. I was ready to go see more shows and stuff like that. You jumped on the bus. And I, saw, <laughs> I was ready to be on the bus and get on the road, that's for sure. So I saw a bunch of shows like circa 87 through 89 is when I graduated, and I would see the shows like locally for where I was, which was like um, I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey, and right outside of the city of Manhattan. So I would see the local shows, which would be Brendan Byrne was the closed arena, at the time, and Giant Stadium was, was the open arena um, or stadium shows. And then I would see the garden shows at MSG. Once in a while, Nassau Coliseum show, which is more of a hike. Um, and that was pretty much it. And then with them coming around with almost three tours a year and multiple shows, you know, just seeing two, three shows at each run, the shows racked up pretty quick. And by the time I graduated high school, I'd taken in somewhere around 30 shows, give or take. I think over my years, up until Jerry passed away, I saw somewhere – around 40 shows, 35 or 40 shows. That's how I would see my shows during during high school and stuff like that. And then I graduated in high school, um, and I went to work at the Concord Hotel. And I remember coming down to see shows then, like circa 90, like coming down to see the shows, even while I was working and living up there, and still doing the shows and loving the scene, and it was vibrant. And, and all during high school, I, like, like, prided myself as being, like, a deadhead. Like, I dressed the part. I wore, like, a fringe jacket or ponchos and stuff like that. And I was, like, you know, around the scene. And I would go hang out in Sheep's Meadow in Central Park and Strawberry Fields. Um, and I would bend also in the city. There was, like, a whole deadhead community, like, hanging out in the city by the band shelter and Sheep's Meadow. And 
people would walk around and sell beers or candy or uh, I sold frozen candy bars and, and, um, <laughs> and beers and cigarettes, <laughs> all the healthy stuff. I would make some, you know, pocket change and whatever. And we would hang out and smoke in the park and chill out and stuff like that. And, um, they would sell doses in the park too. And people would come there party and stuff like that. And it was just great and stuff. And the reason I mentioned that is because then eventually I, I went on tour and that's where I got my money from. Like on my first tour, when I came home to the Concord hotel, I went on tour and the money was saved. I remember going to Pittsburgh and I hadn't really traveled too much for the shows uh, when I was younger, uh, like in high school. But then I started to do a few traveling shows with the money that I was earning in the park from vending. And I remember going to Pittsburgh and I met somebody there and then they were like, you know, you, this, you know, this is going to be the last show in Ohio and you should come meet us. And then we're going to go out to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. We're going to vend, you know, kind veggie egg rolls and you should come there and hang out there and for the summer. And I was like, yeah, that's great. I was, they were traveling around like a cool VW bus with some lady. I was like, that's great. I want to do that. So I came home and it sounded exciting and adventuresome. So, so did you go? I, I did go, but it didn't work out quite as planned. <laughs> um, there was no cell phones at the time or internet and times were a little bit different. I took, um, I took my car. I had like an old beater car and I, I drove out to Pittsburgh. Excuse me. I'd seen him in Pittsburgh where we discussed it. I drove home to do this and I actually lost my car. My car overheated and, and the car, I didn't get Aww. the car. I stayed in a hotel. Yeah, I took a bus home, but then I see, I went back to the park and I earned some money. I think like $700 is what I was going to go on the road, with, which it wasn't enough then, but it, you may do with it. And, uh, you know, we were young and ready for an adventure. Everything so you needed was there, right? I mean, all you really needed that, was gas and food, you know, and everything else that, once you got there was waiting for you. That was the hope. So I was going to go with that hope and. And I was young, too. Things were different. You know, I could sleep on a rock or in a tent. And uh, mentally and physically, I was able to do that. And those are the times to do those adventures. So I'm glad I did it because I'm talking about it now. <laughs> it's good. It brings everything, like, full circle, like, you know, building blocks in your life or stepping stones to, to who we become later in life. And I love hearing the stories about the East Coast because growing up on the West Coast, you know, hearing about Sheep's Meadow and in, in, um in Central Park and then thinking about, like, the panhandle at the Haight. And, um, I mean, I think just the, the community and, you know, at that time in the late 80s, you know, into the early 90s, I mean, there really was just this burst of energy onto the scene that, you know, was the time when many people sort of jumped on, um, myself included. And I love hearing, you know, just how everybody's story is unique to their own, yet there's just this common thread that goes within them all, this commonality of people looking for for their place, for who they are, their place to belong. Like-minded people, right? We always hear that expression. Of course, that finally I was with people that understood me. You know, I wasn't quite like other boys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like other girls, you know. I had my own way about me. I'm unique. That's just that. So when I found that, I found other unique people. And I think that was one of the draws of the Grateful Dead for me was like, some people say it's all about the music. For me, the central point is the music. But I did like the camaraderie. And I also like the scene and being around like-minded people and being able to express myself and, and be myself and not be judged as much or, or so I felt. So, so that was good for me. I and think then, it's um, both. I mean, I think it's 50-50. I think it's the music and the people. And I think that, that the two things you know, really can't exist without, without each other. I think that the, the people, even with the people there without live music, you're playing music. I mean, I think it's this connection to the music and then the connection with each other. I, I, I really think that it's part and parcel, you know, like just. On that tour, it was also an adventure. I, just, I, w I went to, eventually what did happen is I, I couldn't find my, I took the bus money and I went to Pittsburgh, uh, excuse me, to Ohio to the last show. And I forget where it was. It wasn't Buckeye. It was a different place. I think maybe Starlight, Amp no, that was Pittsburgh. 
I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. There was two fields, one field for the parking lot, and the other side of the road was where the Grateful Dead were playing in a big giant field in Ohio. And like I said, no cell phones. I was overwhelmed. I got there. I had all my gear packed up, all my stuff ready to bend for the summer. I walked around all day long, and I could not find my friends. It was massive. The cars went on forever. Everybody looked, you know, similar. And I asked around. I couldn't find them. And eventually, I did find the, the lady that they were traveling with in her bus. And she's like, hey, they're not with us anymore. They got off on the last stop. They're in the Red Hot Chili Pepper bus. So I'm like, great. <laughs> so I started looking for the Red Hot Chili Pepper bus, and I couldn't find it. I, I met other people. I met a, a preacher's daughter and this other guy. And they were like, they were grownups to me. Like, they were in their 40s or whatever. And uh, I was like, you know, young young kid and stuff and uh in my te- you know late teens they took she was just experiencing the stuff like at a later time in life because she grew up in a conservative thing uh household and he was showing her the way and they're like yeah our kids w- are with us too they're in a different you know caravan and we're going out to the rainbow gathering so like look if you can't find your friends we'll be here at the end of the show we'll take you out there so at the end of the show i couldn't find them i came out of the show early and they were waiting i put a note on their car and they were waiting for me i jumped in the back like a pickup truck that had like a little bed in it or whatever and that was it. They drove me out of the show right from there, Ohio, like all the way through to Colorado. I remember going to the hot springs at Lovely Peak, too, and traveling to the mountains. And it was just such an adventure for a young guy like me. And then we did Rainbow Gathering for a while. And then I hooked up with other people at the Rainbow Gathering in a VW bus, another group of young people. We were going to go to – they wanted to go to Belize. They had a friend that had a hotel there. and like, we'll go work in Belize. We're going to travel home to, back to – uh, they wanted to go out to California or wherever. And we started traveling that way. And needless to say, like I got in the bus because they need some gas money and I was going to help out. And before long, we all ran out of money and <laughs> it was just survival. So we went from Salvation Army to Salvation Army for gas vouchers. They used to get us just to get out of town. And then uh, that was like my real work experience on the road. And um, then I remember like eventually the uh, United Ways paid for our way to go home, which was in South Carolina where they were. They paid for the whole trip. And it was interesting back at the time, too. Like, I remember, like, they paid the men a certain amount of money to get per day, and they paid the women differently because um, the men could work, but they were saying, like, the women, it was harder. Like, it's just funny, like, how the world's changed and stuff. There was still, even at that time, um, some separation between men and women and money and things that like that was working. But that, they were, it was a great organization. They'll give a shout-out to the United Way. They did help me and stuff like that. And I also remember specifically when the VW bus broke down one time, like, we didn't have money and stuff, and I remember, like, somebody that owned an auto mechanic shop where we pulled in, he asked if we had money, and we didn't, and he goes, he let us sleep behind his shop, and he also said, I was like you one time when I was younger, I guess he was a hippie in his day, and he said, this is my address, if you ever have the money, you can send it to me, and if not, I'll do it kindly, and I just remember that, you know, now it's my chance to, like, repay and do some nice things like that, or I should, it just rings home, so part of the whole experience, and then I did, I came Eventually, we went to South Carolina. I worked on a shrimp boat for like a couple of days out to sea. I was sick from it. And forget it. We never went to Belize. Eventually, <laughs> that ran out. And I called my mommy and daddy for the Western Union bus ticket home. And I took like a 14-hour <laughs> trip home and back to suburbia, which is where I was from. I was a, I was a suburbanite. I was, you know, a suburban kid. I wasn't rich, but I, I never went without. I grew up in suburbia humbly and stuff like that. You know, I paid for my car. My gas would change, literally. But I grew up in a, a decent area of Bergen County. So, Back to mommy and daddy and back to Bergen Community College for a little bit of college. And um, then more shows. Like, I remember specifically, like, a 92 show um, 
You know, I have notes about the 92 show because, you know, the architect on the podcast is going to be talking about the stories and the songs and... And oh my God, you have so many stories, and just that story alone, like I feel like I like a reminds me of the Simon and Garfunkel where you go out to look for America. It's <laughs> amazing. Six-week adventure on the road. I always tell people, I'm like I was on the road once. I like I didn't tour extensively, and even that tour was just a couple shows. But that was my adventure. You know, that's my youth, my six weeks on the road, and that six that's weeks, awesome. you know, forever to be told. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to do it. And, I wouldn't want to do it the way I did it then now, if that's what youth is for. uh, No, exactly, exactly. Well, let's play some music. I want to go in and I want to play the first song because we do have the 92 song and we have an 89 song too. So what I want to do is I want to go for the listeners and play the music because we pick something or you pick something from your first show, which was Madison Square Garden. So we're going to play that. And then there's a, a show in between that you have a specifically colorful story about, which I haven't heard so we're going to do that, and then we can get our way back up to 92, and then we'll roll into that show and that song. How's that sound? That sounds great. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Okay, cool. So, everyone, we are going to throw it back to Madison Square Garden, and this is September 18, 1987. And at the end of the show, they do a little good loving with an interlude of La Bamba in the middle. That, that La Bamba is actually, from what I understand, that he – Jerry sang it in Spanish in there, and I, I heard that he only did it three times like that. I think that was the second time, if my facts are correct. And this is the second show I saw, and this is where I discovered, where I got the Grateful Dead, and I got hooked on it. Well, right on. Well, let's go and hear it, and then we're going to come back, and I want to hear a little bit more about the, the late 80s into the 90s. And then we got a shitload of stuff to cover, like, current day, too. So, uh, so we have, this is the, the first of many stories, everyone. So let's go enjoy that, and then we will be back. Sweet.
And uh, and we that the stories they got like so exciting and going down the road that I I want to like reel us back to 1987 because you know it had an amazing story that I alluded to earlier and I want to hear it so uh, tell us a little bit about the show yeah let's hear it go ahead yes. so in October 7th of 89 uh, that's the year I, I graduated and just backing up just a little bit and. Um, Right then, one of the you know the shows just reminiscing about the things we used to go to Giant Stadium was one of my focal points to see shows and just the experience back then. Like this particular show is a lightning show. I think my friend Rob also, my friend Rob Schmidt Cookie. I think this was one of his first shows. I think we spoke about this one time. But a lot of people remember this show and it stands out. It was it was a thunder and lightning show. And, you know, back in the day, all we wanted was a ticket to get in, and um, you know, money was sparse and stuff so once we got in it was real loose you, you could wiggle around the stadiums and go where you wanted so to speak there was security but we were pretty good about it and one of the big thrills was to be on the floor because it was you know it still is it's ga and the party was down on the floor man the dance party was it was booming and stuff like that so i just wanted to be on the floor dancing around and raging and as soon as the music would start at giant stadium like the second they would start to tune up we would all jump over the walls like a waterfall of people and like it was an unbelievable sight. You would just look around at the whole lip of the stadium. was just flowing people over. The idea was to do it in masses so the security couldn't grab us quick enough. And so everyone would do it at once. And 
I remember being all electrified and having my backpack on, my multicolored backpack. And like, we'd, the camaraderie, everyone around me, I was like, come on, like, we're going to go over the wall. I got, my, I got my parachute on. Like, what's the music start? Let's all, we're all going to go. We're all going to go. We hype everyone up, and boom, the music was starting, boom, over that wall. And, and we did. And I remember being on the floor, and the second you got there and just ran away from the edge, you know, where the security was, you'd just be in paradise, dancing and happy. And that happened with that show and thundered and lightning like so bad. And I can remember they really got on the loudspeakers and they were like, everybody, you know, get you know, away from the stage. They wanted us to like leave, leave the floor. And of course we couldn't leave because we had no wristbands or tickets. So we all just sat down and, and partied and stuff like that. It was good to go. Eventually they just kept playing and stuff like that. I think they stopped for a little while, but then they came on and it was just an amazingly memorable show and i remember specifically like the song was playing the music never stops and the lightning was like going off like on cue like to the song and stuff like that like where it should be and the right flashes and the right beats and it was just again magic in the air that night so just one of the amazing experiences i had growing up you know in the scene well let's uh well let's play that yeah well let's play the song and then i want to hear about yeah i mean there's there's so much let's let's go play that song so we're still in the moment and we can i mean gosh who doesn't love the music never stops i mean it's it's, i don't it's always one of my favorites no matter what the rotation is is going and um so well let's play that and then uh and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about uh what was going down in early 90s sounds good sounds good okay well uh Let's go. The music never stops. Sweet. Hit it. On the river, fish are rising up like birds. It's been hot for seven weeks now, too hot to even speak now. But you hear what I just said? So it might have been a pebble, or it could have been the wind. Or there seems to be a beat now, I can feel it in my feet now. I said, Here it comes again. Going to die. 
walls of lightning roll along. Women sing about their dreams. Women laugh and children scream. And they play it out. Keep on dancing to the daylight. Greet the morning air with song. No one's noticed but the bands are packed and gone.
Well, back from listening to The Music Never Stops, and we are going to go from 89 up to 92. So, Sam, tell us, what was uh, what was bubbling around in 1992? So, in, in 92, just to reiterate, I, I got, you know, all the Grateful Dead, you know, I turned on to in high school up until 89, graduated. We listened to the first song in 87. Um, I graduated in 89. That's the lightning storm. And then I talked a little bit about the tour, which came somewhere between 89 and 92 is when I toured around, did my six weeks. And then specifically remember in 1992, going with my friend, Eric J, who's my best friend from high school, drove out to DC, um, to RFK stadium. I remember being in RFK stadiums. Uh, I think we slipped onto the floor. We were first here, but then we slipped onto the back of the, the, the floor and we were being down there and, it was just an amazing show. Like it was special. Like you know, you have those hot shows or the ones that stick out. This show sticks out for me as my youth is like one of the hot shows. And I remember it was special because I was there with my my best buddy, number one, who didn't do all the shows with me. And then also, I remember the the energy that was there. And that particular tour, they hadn't really played Casey Jones in a long time. And I just remember that being the vibe. Like people talking about they didn't play Casey Jones anymore. And, I don't know how long they hadn't played it. And I, I think I heard a rumor like they hadn't played it in years, but I don't remember what it was. But all during the, the tour, Mickey Hart was coming out with these train horns. And it was really cool. Like he had these real train horns from a train. They were like strapped to his chest. He would almost wear it like a big medallion. So he'd have this thing like over his head or whatever. And it was like across his chest. And he would like tease us during space and during the show. He would just give like a little toot of the train horns and then nothing would happen. Or maybe they'd start Casey or they wouldn't do anything. And then, it was on at this show. Boom. It was like a hot show. And then out of nowhere, boom, the whistle keep blowing, boom, plays the whistle. And then boom, into Casey Jones. And there was just an amazing, amazing roar from the crowd and the energy and what makes those shows special. And it was on and they played Casey Jones. And they also played Bob O'Reilly. I, I ah. believe it was second set. It was just amazing. It was sick. Yeah, it was a teenage wasteland that night. It was it was awesome. Great experiences that stand out just for the, the energy, the music, the set list. And just for me, I guess it's whatever anyone takes away from the show. But I took away magic that night. So it was awesome. Well, I always loved that kind of uh, that like elusive, those songs that they kind of put into retirement that were like such, you know, powerful songs and such a big part of the catalog. And you know, maybe in the 60s or the 70s, and then they, they did like a semi-retirement of them. And what I remember from the late 80s and into the early 90s was Dark Star. I remember they hadn't played Dark Star in so long, and, it, and every time you would go to a show, that was always the, the, the elusive moose, you know. There's a child's kid's book that I <laughs> read to my son. I love that. The elusive moose, you know, and everyone was like <laughs> looking for it, and uh and on two of these podcasts, it's kind of really quite extraordinary. One of like the elusive songs was Unbroken Chain. And I had two separate people tell the same story about the same show when they busted out Unbroken Chain. So I love the Casey Jones, like the memory of that, because it brings back, I mean, I think that it was such a cat and mouse game with the band where they had these great songs that everybody knew and they had the songs they played and, and we knew kind of what to expect, but um, when they would come, bring a song out of retirement, I mean, it just, it brought so much joy, you know, because it was, it was unexpected and it was special and, and everything about the shows was so special, but to really take it up another level, excitement was, you know, phenomenal. Agreed. Agreed. So cool. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear that train. Uh, let's hear those train 
horns blow. So, and then I'm going to do a little bonus. I'm going to play two songs uh, before we come back, get maybe a little bit more up to the 21st century and what's happening now. I'm going to do the uh, Casey Jones and then the Bob O'Reilly because, I mean, yeah, that's that's always special and, and such a killer, killer song with a hot, hot vibe. I yeah. love it. Bring it, Stacey. Let's do it. <laughs> Woohoo! All right, let's Wee. bring it on. Woo! Play it. Turn it up. We'll go hear it and then we'll be back. Enjoy.
back from a little Baba O'Reilly and Casey Jones, and uh, so we're in '92. So uh, you know what's uh, what, what, what's happening around that time in, oh, yeah. in your world? '92. I'm still bumping around, finding my way, slaving away, taking different labor jobs and working, and you know, growing up a little bit and figuring it out. And I'm starting to do less shows just because I'm working and making a living or trying to, trying to figure it all out. So at that point, doing less shows. And I remember around, somewhere around like after 92, like it started to change. And I remember specifically like in there, 93, whatever it was, being at a show and, you know, turning to my friends and being like, you know, the scene's changing. Like the baggy pants were on the scene and, and it's, the vibe was different. And uh, I can't explain it, but it, it was real. And I know Jerry uh, talked about that too. And Bobby were saying that they, they weren't fond of the scene then, but I didn't realize that at the time. There was no Facebook and I wasn't tuned in like that. But now I hear it and I'm like, oh, they, they felt the same thing I felt. And I do specifically remember that. And then Jerry passed away, unfortunately, which is a tragedy. And, and nobody knew what to do or I didn't. I remember talking about that, the kid, what'll happen if, if God forbid Jerry passed away or when the dead you know, aren't around anymore? Like, where's everyone going to go? Everyone's like touring around and people are making a living, like bending stuff. And it's just like, what's going to happen? And then when it did happen, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. And like, I went to Strawberry Fields that night. They did a candlelight vigil in, in the park and me and my friend Eric went to it. It was just strange. We sang songs and stuff and hung out and smoked and consoled each other and lit candles. But that was that. And then... There was a rumor that they were going to play um, Central Park, which I was hoping they would do, and then they didn't. They, they played out in California, which was fine, and we were hoping they would come our way, and, and that didn't happen. And then uh, shortly afterwards, they pretty quickly, they did like a festival, further festival, but it was with Rat Dog playing. And I remember going to see Bob and Rat Dog for the first time at Jersey City, which is a place I hadn't saw. It was like a, a state park. And then I would see like a couple Phil shows, and I saw they would read, you know, over the years, you know, it was the other ones one time with, I think, Brandon Marsalis. I'm probably using bad, wrong names or bad at names, but I was playing with them. And then I saw, I think they called it The Dead. The I Dead, yep. The, I think it was think Further, one, The Dead, and The Other Ones. I think those were the three main yeah, yeah, I may have mixed up the order. And then Warren Haynes played with either The Other Ones or The Dead. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember it. That, that was never oh. me. I never knew the name of every song or knew everything. But I loved the music and stuff. But so... Somewhere in there, I saw some of that, and it was all right, and I loved it, but it wasn't the same. There wasn't really a scene as much. I didn't feel the scene myself personally, and then I let it go. And then I was finding my way and wearing button-up shirts and trying to be a businessman. And I was, you know, I was slowly getting away from laboring, and eventually I did work for – I went back to college in my 30s. And during that period, actually, at one point, I, just, I worked at NBC. After NBC, I got a favor job um, as a stagehand. Thank you, brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, Chris, and my sister, Debbie, hooked me up with a, with a stagehand job for NBC. Uh, hey, where Chris. My brother hey, Debbie. Shout yeah. out. <laughs> shout out. Hey, uh, shout my out. My brother-in-law is Wally. He's, um, he does the cue cards to this day. He owns a cue card company for Saturday Night Live. And, you know, he got me a laborer's job over there, basically, where I was a stagehand. And I used to set up Saturday Night Live and the Today Show. And, um, you know, I'd buff the floor out of the Today Show and wave at the people outside. You know, it sounds more glamorous than it was, but it was fun, and I got a kick out of it. And I did see some famous people in there. And I would come in early to see some of the acts play, and specifically in bringing this up, because Mickey Hart one time came and visited the Today Show with Edie Burkell. And I remember, like, the gear was, like, outside, and, like, the, the all the stage gear had, like, Grateful Dead stamps on it. And I was, like, so thrilled, like, that part of my life wasn't around for a long time, but it brought up memories. I'm like, oh my God, like I was a deadhead, and like I'm roading the dead's gear, and 
Nobody else cared there. And I went inside. I remember Mickey Hart had a xylophone made out of gourds that he had made. And I was just enamored, like, just to go over. And, like, I went over and, like, I touched him. I'm like, oh, I'm touching Mickey Hart's gourd a xylophone. And then Edie Brickell, like, freestyled, like, these weird vocals, like, doing, like, psychedelic sounds with her voice and, like, Mickey playing with it. And like, it was really cool. I was the only one in the studio for the dress rehearsal. And I got a kick out of that. And then... I used to see some other bands. I saw ACDC play, and remember Brian, the lead singer, like came up to me, like shook my hand if I'm using the right name, and like right up to the show. And it was just exciting. I remember Angus Young from ACDC walked by me at like two in the afternoon, and he's like, "I'm usually still snoozing. It's too bloody early." And it's like two in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> it's like awesome. So then, um, after all that stuff, and seeing a couple of the Phil shows, and I wasn't really doing much with the scene and stuff. I started my own business, and I remember like. Somewhere around seven years ago, you know, I'd done some festivals. I'd done the 94 Festival back in the day and the 99 Woodstock. And I did two Vibes festivals in the day. Just like I was, I did the first Bonnaroo in my 30s. My neighbor took me. I'd stopped doing festivals in my 30s from the heat and I got too beat up. And I wasn't going to do that stuff. Like it was just, I was always there with the music scene, but I wasn't hardcore. And so that's why I brought that stuff up. And I did the, like the first Bonnaroo. I wasn't really in the scene, but my neighbor had taken me. And then my neighbor, like, was starting, even though I wasn't paying attention to the dead, I wasn't doing film shows. I remember my, I'm 47, I remember, like, in my early 30s, this young neighbor who hadn't done the scene, he was starting to, like, show me Mo and String Cheese Incident. And he's, like, showing me how, like, there's a jam band scene starting again. And that's when I did the two Vibes concerts and experienced a little bit of it and saw some of those types of acts. I think Phil and Friends may have been at one of them. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. It was just... It was all right, but the scene wasn't hardcore, and I was just trudging along. I did the Bonnaroo, and then, then when I started my company, I was basically wearing button-up shirts, not doing anything with the dead, not seeing really Phil shows or anything. I remember this girl that was working for me, Andrea, she was, like, all into it and enamored with Phil and doing all the Phil shows and totally in the scene and showing me videos and pictures, and I was barely paying attention. I remember saying to her, I was like, yeah, I used to do that. You'd never know it, like you just think that I'm like this grumpy like businessman, but I actually was a happy hippie at one time. It's a part of my life that you don't know about. And you would never have known it. I wasn't dressing the part. I didn't act like that. I wasn't really that interested. And it's just funny. I bring that up because then shortly after that is when I rediscovered it. But so I wasn't paying that much attention. And then what, what brought the light to it was the, the fairly well 50 shows or Stacy, what were those shows called? The, the fairly well. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, the, the fairly the well. Shows, right? Fairly so, well. Yeah. I did not go, unfortunately, and me but that's what brought me back, so to speak, is that I remember hearing about those shows vaguely, and I was like, oh, I hope they come here, but for some reason, I wasn't thinking about traveling, just because wasn't doing the scene, and Chicago seemed far away, and I was like... And that was a big, you know, that was a mail order, I mean, that was a lottery, I mean, I, I mean, I remember that, that coming up, I remember when Fairly Well came up, and... At the time, my my little experience with Fairly, which I'm sure I've shared on the podcast before, but uh, was it was in Chicago, and I was going from the East Coast to the West Coast with my family on vacation. So it was what two years ago, and me and my husband were bringing my kids back to California, and we hadn't in. I don't like three years because they were such assholes on the plane when they were two and five that I said I would do it again when they were five and eight, you know? <laughs> so, yes. so finally at five and eight, I'm like, okay, we're going to try this again. You know, we're going to, we're going to go, you know, 3000 <laughs> miles as a family again, where you're, you're up to bat again. And, uh, and wouldn't you know that the fucking concert was planned like right 
like as soon as I got to California, like it was planned. Like I think I was getting in, it was third and fourth of July and I was due into San Francisco on July 2nd or something. So I was like immediately, you know, doing the math and thinking, there's just no way, you know, like it'd be fun, but I mean, there's, you can't go from point A to B and it wasn't turnkey. Like you had to mail in and, and it was a big deal. And then they fucking did the Santa Clara one the week before, which just really like turned the knife because that was the week before I got there. Right. (laughs) All my friends saw the Santa Clara shows and it's like, yeah, well, I was there a week later, you know, like, but again, you get older, you get life, you have jobs. Remember, I had a sales meeting. No, I had kids, I had a job, I had meetings. Like, you can't just drop everything just because, you know, there's something happening in Chicago or happening in Colorado or, I mean, gosh, just like the Red Rock show. I mean, I would love to have been at the Red Rock show a couple nights ago, but you, Me know, too. you got to pick and choose. Even, even I have to make choices. Like, I would like yeah. to do that too, but- I have to do work right now. Like some people think I don't work from all the shows I do, but I do have to work to pay for the show. So unfortunately, yeah, that <laughs> but, looked like um, a good show, man. Just a couple nights it, ago, it, it looked that amazing. did look it's like an amazing show. Awesome. But Marvel to everyone who's there. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, exactly. I'm not a hater. I hope everyone it. had a great time that was there, and thank you to everyone who shared the streams. I love it. So Fairly Well comes around, and we're and it's it is it, not it, it happening around. on the East Coast. Exactly, and I wasn't there, and I wasn't even. I was trying to just. I wasn't even paying attention, and. There's the phone rings, and it's my friend Tara Panarello, my buddy that I grew up with, and my one of my besties. And she's like, "Hey, listen, you got to turn on the TV. I rented all the pay-per-views. I've been watching them, and like, it's amazing." She goes, "It's alive again. Like, it's happening. It's awesome." So I did. I rented the last pay-per-view, and I was like, "This is fucking awesome." And I remember calling her and watching the show with her, and it, it was just like, "Why the fuck wasn't I there?" Like, I was a deadhead and stuff like that, and like, I should have been there. And then I. This is a key thing to say. Like, as a kid, I remember, like, looking around at the festivals and being at the festivals. I remember, like, seeing the people with their fancy RVs or their cool Swiss family Robinson buses, and they had all the gear, and they were set up right, and they, they had the stickers, and they just knew how to do it. And I was like, I didn't have the money to do that. And I was like, what's it going to be like when I'm the OG? And then I never got the chance. Jerry died. And I never yeah. became the OG, and I never got to see the New Year's show or the Halloween shows. Those are bucket list things for me. And then I, then the button-up shirts came in, and that part of my life was just gone, and I, I never thought it would happen again. But I was wrong. It was all part of the big picture and stuff like that, and, and full circle. And then that's what happened. The, the 50 shows brought the spotlight to the scene again, and they, they reawakened. It was like sleeping and stuff, and they like brought it alive again. I really feel the scene's alive again right now. Or at least for me, it brought attention. And I've talked to other people that they think the same thing. And then, I then I heard, well, well Dead & Co., I heard, oh, well, John Mayer might perform. And I was, I was like, well, I'm going to that. I'm going to be like on the rail, like front row or right down front. And they're like, well, how are you going to do that? Go, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to pay attention. I'll make it happen. And I did. When they announced the show for the Halloween, I was there. I was on it. Two tickets for me and my, my friend Tara. And then they kept announcing more shows, Albany, this, that. And I just kept buying up the shows. And then during that period of time, I had a, got a stress problem for my business. I've been just pushing my business, pushing my business, working seven days a week. And before I had my business, I, I ran the work for somebody else, helping run their business, which I learned mine. I was like 15 years at seven days a week, 90-hour weeks, and you know, 60 to 90-hour weeks, and ridiculous hours and stress. And I, my face, I got something called Bell's palsy, and half my face was paralyzed where the stress was keeping it. And the doctor said, you know, I need to not be stressed out. And I was like, the poster child for stress. You look up stress, you see a picture of me in the, in the dictionary. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just perfect. So I just kept buying tickets. I'm like, I'm going to cure myself with the power of the Grateful Dead. Like I was 
kidding around semi. And I didn't want any Facebook before this with my business. I didn't want to be on Facebook or social media. I had no presence. I didn't really want to be bothered with that. This changed everything. So Facebook started with the music. I buried myself in the music with my face being paralyzed. And I started to do shows. I started in Albany at the first show. And like literally, I remember driving in with my friend Eric, my buddy from high school. I brought him to the first show to rekindle it. And we, we went in. As soon as I got to the parking lot, like there was Shakedown Street. And it was just, you could see right away. Like, I'm like, I can't believe it's going on. There's Shakedown. We went inside, walked right up to the front of the stage. I think I was like second from the front of the stage right away. And they played their first show. And I remember just leaving, being like, holy shit, like, this is awesome. It felt real again. Like, it was the, the thing for me, the closest to the Grateful Dead since, since my last show. And I was happy about that. And then just kept doing the shows. I remember doing the Halloween show, dressing up. We were on the rail or one behind the rail for the Halloween. And then I did 14 what, shows What did you dress together. up as? What, what, I dressed what up as, you? like, a Mad Hatter with, like, rabbit ears and, like, you know, a tie-dye shirt or whatever. And, like, it was awesome. I had a big top hat on, crazy rabbit ears. And it was just fun. I was dancing all big, having a great time, and it was already helping with the stress and stuff. And then I did 14 the first tour, including my first time out. I got the bucket list, the New Year's show in. Uh, Bob Weir's daughter was, like, throwing rose petals on me. I was on the rail, and rose petals yeah, were falling awesome. on me from, from Bobby's daughter. And, like, it was just amazing. Like, what a show. Like, I have an amazing video that I shot from that. And, and during this period of doing the shows, I did 14. I started to become a rail rider during this time, too. I started to see the same people start being the guy that shows up first thing in the morning, you know, starting to ride that rail. And I liked that because of Facebook, I was meeting people and I was starting to network and starting to get photos and video from the rail. And that started to change things for me as far as social network and Facebook, as far as keeping in touch with people. And then me becoming like, you know, super fan or fanboy as I like to call it. Like I like to be involved with the scene. I like the music, but I like the camaraderie also. So that's what brought it home. So I, I did that. I did the bucket list show. And then, then right into the next tour, I did 11 shows on the next Dead & Co. tour because it went right up until, you know, up until the winter, pretty much, you know, New Year's. And then the next year was boom, right again. It came around fast for the summer. And I did that. And then I started to do some more festivals. I went to my first Peach Festival. I started to do Capitol Theater shows. And that's a big thing because the spotlight on the 50 shows led me back to the Grateful Dead or Dead & Co., which then led me to the other jam band stuff within the scene, like Mo and Strange Seas Incident and other things that I've seen Bob Dylan recently. And I'm, I become, you know, I'm a rail rider, so I start to show early, make my presence, keep doing my things. During that period, I start to sticker people. I start to break out. I remember old school as a kid seeing at the shows the camaraderie of people doing the supermarket stickers, the bright orange supermarket stickers. And so I continue that legacy. I, I like that, that tradition. I start to bring supermarket stickers and say sweet oh. or special or just big. You completely or... brought that back for me. I mean, I think the first time that we probably met face to face was at the, uh, was at Rob Rossman's. Hey, Rob's uh, tree of life. What up, Rob? And uh, what up, Rob? And, uh, <laughs> and you guys had those and I had not seen them. I mean, again, I'd gone to some shows and this and that, but clearly was not in the same place as you guys. And the, I remember getting like a juicy sticker on my butt or something. And, <laughs> awesome. and it just, it, oh, it made me so happy because it just, Maybe yeah, it it's like sweet. that. It just brings you, it was a sweet, it was something cool, you know, something. It, they're not free. I tell some people, they're like, what's this? I go, well, they're not free. What can I have two? Well, you'll have to pay me twice. Well, what's the cost? Two hugs. <laughs> so I get a lot of hugs and stuff like that for the stickers and it's great and the smiles and once in a while somebody will say what's this what's all this about and they go it's about the camaraderie about being together and on that note I'll throw a quick story in with the stickers 
one time I was stickering up, it was Phil Lesh and friends at like the Brooklyn ball and like his son, Graham Lesh is there and like, and the family band. And like, I see like Alice Coford and I, I, I sticker him and then I, I sticker Graham and then I, I give Alex like a strip and I'm like, Hey Alex, here's a strip, like sticker the band. And he's like, they're not dosed, are they? I'm like, no, they're not dosed, Alex. So, and then, next thing you know, <laughs> like, I sticker the, yeah. <laughs> the whole audience. And, like, I tell everyone, like, come on, the band's wearing them, too. It's like the camaraderie. You know, the band comes out there wearing them. We're wearing them. Everybody loves that. And then, like, during that show, like, Graham, the, some of the people had them on and um, people, like, wearing that stickered in the band. And then I also I saw Jason Crosby had stickered. He's wearing his. Great guy, Jason. And, and then next thing you know, like, Graham, I hadn't given the stickers to. It was like to Alex Coford, and then next thing you know, like under Graham's sole of his boot, like my friend like taps me, and he's like, "Yo, Graham's wearing the sticker." And like just as that happened, I turn my back. You know, it's like on, on his heel of his shoe, all sneaky. Phil Lesh pulls up his his pants, and he's got one of my sweet stickers on his sock. My friend yells over. He's like, Steve Urban yells over. He's like, "Yo, sweet sticker, Phil." And then Phil's like. He's in a local Grateful Dead band also. And so he yells over, the sweet sticker, Phil, show us your sticker. And Phil acts like all nonchalant, like like he can't see the sticker. And, and like he doesn't even hear us and stuff like that, like being funny about it. And then the next day I come into the the Brooklyn Bowl for another show and I see Graham like, hey, Graham, what's up? I'm like, your dad's a fucking pisser. I'm like, you know, he's so funny. We saw the stickers. I, I rip off a sheet of stickers. I hand it to him. I think they said special. And I said, let's play again. So and I put a sticker on him. So Graham comes out. He's wearing the sticker. I sticker the whole audience. I tell everybody, like, you know, the band might wear them. They wore them last night. We'll see. I go, they're being sneaky. Let's play. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, Phil doesn't have the sticker on the whole time. And then I'm like, oh, okay, it is what it is. And, like, second set, you know, Phil comes out. He's got, like, the special sticker, like, right under his chin on, like, the collar, you know, on, like, the, the rim of his shirt. Like, oh, the neckline. Awesome. He's got the bright oh, orange. So sticker that's a special like it was just awesome he leaves it on for the second thing so the stickers are fun and stuff like that and i i like the camaraderie i like doing it like being involved and it's all feeling the unity or whatever so then with that also with, with coming back and, and doing the capitol theater and we call it cap family like everything peter shapiro and the whole staff does over there at the cap they treat me so good they treat everybody so good and the brooklyn ball is an extension of peter's venues that he has it's just amazing and, and the camera people and, and everybody it's just cat fam and stuff and that's another thing like i know a lot of the camera people they you know nice take beautiful photos of me and then uh, like the live streams the nugs tv because i'm a rail rider i get seen on that that helped me like network and meet a lot of people and you know i love that so people like come up to me hey we, we see you on the live streams or you know like during the dead and color at the capitol and like i i enjoy that that's fun for me and stuff like that and being part of it and then also during that period, so now I'm, like, doing tons of Capitol shows, becoming super fanboy, tons of photos. I used to do lots of photos with the bands. In the beginning, I would call it the Ringo Star Peace Sign Selfie Photo Club. And that was basically me asking, like, some of the musicians or some of the, the audience to take photos with me giving the peace sign. And it was fun. It was just an introductory fun line. I, I have a lot of photos with, you know, a lot of the musicians. And then I post them. And it just helped me network. And it was fun. And people enjoyed seeing them. I, I had the arch cardinal dolan one time i got a photo with him which is amazing doing the peace sign with, with like his giant like you know the the ring that he wears and stuff is like uh, doing the peace sign um part of me doing all this and uh being involved with the grateful dead scene and and uh the people i've gotten to meet along the way etc and then during that period i discovered j-rad like i was preaching the preach about the dead and co and everyone's like you gotta see j-rad and 
I'm like, what's that? They're, you know, that's a cover band. It's not, I'm doing Dead & Co. Like, John Mayer's amazing. Like, even if you don't like it, like, don't be a hater. You got to check it out. The theme's alive. And the Cat family turned me on to J-Rad. And it's awesome. Like, that's probably my favorite band right now. And it's just new and fresh and fast. And I like it. Like, it's alive again. And it, it's vibrant. And it's now. And there's a younger scene with that and older people in the mix, as well as with the Dead & Co. And the Phil shows are great, too. I've been seeing a lot more Phil shows lately. But the J-Red's been special to me and friendly with the band and the people around it, the fans. We just have a special J-Red fan base, the J-Red crew, and um, that's just been well, part of the You guys are like family book. now. Yeah, like I mean, family. it's like family it's now. It's like a, like a full family community. I mean, it's incredible. It's so it's fun. It's awesome. It's I've had plenty of FOMO sitting in a, sitting in my home in New England, like on a, a Phil run or J Rad run and, you know, and then the stream stars or the pictures come and I'm just like, Oh man, so close, but not oh, so close good. enough. I no, get really it's awesome. excited for it. I actually so, got so excited for it that during the, the process, like I was getting to be known, like everyone, I, I was meeting so many nice people and networking, like known to be like, you know, the super fanboy or the sticker guy or the guy that's mostly first in line known to be like front and center on the rail and a rail rider and i love that but i want to be known for more than just that so i was like well what can i do i can't play an instrument whatever so i start to do artwork off the j-rad shows and off other music getting inspired from it and now i've been doing artwork and my friends and, and music family have been so positive towards me and made me feel so good about it where i wouldn't have encouraged myself i get the instant response that what I didn't think was good, they've said is good, and it, it encouraged me to do more of the artwork. So now I've been doing artwork, and that makes me feel part of the scene, and like that I have something to offer and stuff. And I've been showing that on Facebook and stuff, and uh, people have been just making me feel good. So we'll see where the artwork goes, but it makes me feel part of the scene, and, and, and I love that. I love being part of the music. Well, no doubt you are a big part of the scene out here. I want everyone to yeah. come up and dance with me at the shows. Like, if you see me at the shows, like, come over and say hello and give me a dance or come get a sticker or, or, or come dance with me or get a hug. And I like that. Like, I, I like networking with the people and with the fans and with other – and I hang out with other super fans or sometimes it's with, you know, Betty Homemaker that doesn't go to shows or this and that. And it doesn't matter whether you've done one shows or you're a rail rider to a million – I do like the camaraderie and stuff like that, and it's a nice outlet from the from the regular, you know, rat race. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. It's something to look forward to. Well, you know, and I have to say, like, I mean, I don't remember back in the day. I mean, I wasn't a rail rider back when I was a teenager. I mean, we used to go to Shoreline, and we used to sit on the lawn, and I don't really remember it being in the equation. And trying to think of the first show that I got, like, really close up front. Um, you know, I think it was a Dead & Company show that it went down on the floor at one of the Civic Center ones where I went, walked, you know, pretty far down on the sh down to the front where it's general mission you can and could just feel the energy and the vibes and the people. And then more recently, you know, going, you know, again, all the way up there. It's so interesting as somebody who is not the first person in line at all. So thank you very much for always making room. It's interesting how when you go to a show, how you're, the music will start. And if you're in the back, It'll be really crowded. And as you kind of work your way forward to the front, um, you'll go through. It's almost like a little chess game. Like you'll walk and then you'll stop and then you'll walk and then you'll stop. And some people are super cool. And then some people are just, you know, would prefer you to move along because you're in their spot. <laughs> yeah, you get everything. And when people don't want you in their space, I mean, the right thing to do is you just keep moving. But my goal is always to keep moving forward, right? You know, I mean, I'm a pushy little thing. So I was it's like, you know, it's cool. I'm not going to stay here for a while. But when you do get up to the front and not all the way to the front front, but that front part, for some reason, 
it always seems to open up. There's always a little bit more space. And people like yourself and your good friends, I think if somebody's so genuinely into it and so happy and there because they want to dance and they want to see the musicians and they want to, you know, they want to shake it and have a good time, it always seems like there's room for one more. And, um, and when there's not, it, being up front is pretty much just like life. It's just etiquette. You try and treat people how you'd want to be treated. There's only so much room up there. We wait all day long for it. We try and if there's room and your friends come over, you try and make a little bit of room. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's, there's not an inch to the left or the right. But hopefully the way we go about it is with etiquette. I haven't always been perfect. I always have room to improve and to do better. But uh, we do the best we can up there. And it's it's awesome. I always feel welcome. I always, is, I always feel welcomed. I never feel yeah, like I get to be the faces. front row. I always feel like I kind of settle in like the second <laughs> or third or fourth row. Like I feel like I didn't wait in line and I don't get to let – Oh, I know what it was. I went to a Dark Star Orchestra show at – that was the one that, that changed it for me. Dark Star Orchestra show at the Calvin Theater in Northampton last fall and was up at the front. And the way the Calvin was, they didn't even really have a rail. The woman that was next to me, like, told me to put my purse on top of the stage. And so I had, like, my bag on top of the stage just because the venue was so small and intimate. And uh, – and I was, this woman was really nice. And then it was during drums in space and she was talking to me for a minute. And then we, she showed me a picture of her dog and then they started up again. And I swear to God, Rob Eaton gave me a dirty look. Like if you're going to be up there, <laughs> fucking pay attention to the music, you know, cause she was talking to me and I was like talking to her for a minute. And I had one of those like, Oh no, etiquette moments. Like if you're going to be in the very front row, you better be enjoying the music and not like, look at her a- phone. I'm a big mouth, as you can see. I keep talking over you. I have my specialty, but like, what, it's funny. Like, you think that I'd be talking everyone's ear up there, but the one thing is, once the music starts up there, it's nothing but hand guy. My hands are going around. I, I dance real big. I'm jumping around. I don't really talk too much when I'm up front. I'll do little interjections, but I'm definitely not the FDF guy. Well, you shouldn't be. I mean, again, once you're up front, like I literally felt like I was like distracting the band. Like when when I was talking, it was such a like. It was such a weird moment, you know, and I actually I met Rob and had lunch dinner with him before a DS show in Boston. Just one of those like happenstance situations um, where he came to the same bar we were eating at and he slid in next to us. And we had a really fun dinner and, and his his sister does what I do and, you know, for real work. And we chatted and, and I had a and I, I pulled up a picture of that show and I told him the story. I'm like, I mean, I was chatting with this lady a little bit, you know, after drums in space, admittedly. And I, and I think you noticed, and I showed him that like the picture, you know, like that's like right up front. And he's like, yeah, I remember you. You know, <laughs> and I was like, it was not my imagination, and uh, it was pretty funny because it's like, no, I think uh, I'm no, I think he's looking at us, but I, I think he was like, shut the fuck up, dude. You know, <laughs> like, I was schooled by Rob right there on the front with my purse on the stage. We'll it will never happen again. No, one and done, one and done. I'm a chatty, chatty, hence the podcast. But uh, one and done. Well, uh, so let's that brings us to Jay. Rad, and that's when we saw each other last and talked about making the podcast. So, you know, we've been talking for a while. I bet the listeners are jonesing for a tune. So, uh, so let's go in and uh, and play one more song. Yeah. So you picked out. I mean, there's so many amazing Jay Rad shows that you've seen. So tell us a little bit about the one that you picked out, which is in um, just this past March. Yeah, the the one I picked out for March is when uh, OTL sat in, which is special to me because I have a special bond towards OTL. When I when I did all the Dead and Co shows. With O'Teal, his wife's uh, friend came out and at, had some 
Let O'Teal Sing shirts before they were very popular. And she asked if we'd wear them as a joke for O'Teal, which I did on the first tour. And I kept riding the rail, wearing it in front of O'Teal. And he'd be laughing and pointing down and giving me the praise symbol. And <laughs> I mean, one time from 50 feet away, I put my hand up and give the peace sign. And like, he takes his hand off the guitar and gives the peace sign back. Like, he can't make it up. It's great. And I met O'Teal one time, did a selfie with him. And anyway, I love O'Teal. So the whole tie-in about O'Teal playing with J-Reds is from, because that's what turned me on to J-Reds. So O'Teal was playing on bass, and he filled in on the bass. And then also, um, I think Stuart Bogey, if I'm saying the right name, was on saxophone. And they were playing at one of my favorite venues at Brooklyn Bowl. I believe this was the last night of three. Regardless, that's the show right there. And it just uh, was Shakedown Street. I think it was, and Shakedown, I think it was the last song of the first set, if I'm not mistaken. And it's just a great Shakedown Street. And uh, I love it. I hope everyone else enjoys it also. Okay. Well, let's go in and uh, let's go in and hear it. And then, uh, then we'll come back and we'll say a little goodbye. Sweet. Let's rage.
Well, back from a little shaking on Shakedown Street, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, J-Rad, I mean, they, you know, they're so fucking awesome. I saw them in December for the first time, and just, yeah, I mean, we want to just keep coming back for more. I mean, and you've really, I mean, you've got, like, a couple more, like, J-Rad stories. I mean, you probably have 50 more J-Rad I stories, have amazing, tell me the, the best one. So, so, like, one time I announced Marco Benevento um, on stage at um the Brooklyn Ball, but that wasn't a J-Rad show. That was Marco playing with his own band. But then recently, um, I got at, at the Capitol Theater to a sold-out crowd. One time at the Brooklyn Ball, just backtracking really fast, we got Marco's keyboard. It's a long story, but Marco was like, hey, bud, want to buy a keyboard? I was like walking down the street, and Marco had his keyboard hanging out of the trunk, joking around with me, trying to sell it. I thought he was kidding around. And to make a long story short, uh, Rob Schmidt wound up with the keyboard, and we carried it out, and people took photos of us carrying it. There's some we're all over Facebook, and me and Rob carrying it, and it was just great and funny and stuff like that. And I drove it home because Rob didn't have a, a car big enough to hold it. And then when I drove it home, I sketched it out the next day, and I did artwork off it. So I drew Marco's keyboard, and I gave Rob the keyboard, who Rob still has it. And then um, the opportunity came for it was Marco's birthday, so I'm like, I'm gonna make a birthday card out of this. So I made a birthday card out of the artwork. And then had everyone at the Capitol Theater sign it, including like some great people like Sam Cutler, who I met that night, who was super personable and friendly. Got some great photos with Sam. Tom Hamilton's father signed it. Tom um, Senior, who's a great guy and a buddy of mine. It was just awesome. And then I took photos of that. And then I'm rambling. But anyway, the staff invited, heard I was doing the card, invited me on stage to present it live to, to Marco. And it was exciting. I gave Marco the card on stage and Marco held it up to the whole audience and then put it on the grand piano. And yeah, it's That's special awesome. to me. You know, it's nice to get those opportunities and do things that and to be involved with the scene. And so J-Rad's special to me. And I hope that I continue to get to do great things, to see more J-Rad shows, to keep meeting great people and stickering everybody. I hope I, you know, collect a zillion hugs this year. And I'm just looking forward to the Phil shows, the festivals, and just carrying on the Grateful Dead tradition um, with along with everybody else and enjoying, you know, the scene, how it's alive and vibrant again and continuing on the legacy. Well, Sam, you are absolutely literally front and center to the scene. I say that literally. <laughs> I say that figuratively and literally. I try. And uh, you are. No, and, I, and I'm stoked to have gotten to know you because, again, it's like you meet I'm people virtually. Yeah, you get to meet people virtually, but then, you know, I mean, the, the chance to get to know people personally and uh, to be able to, you know, not just be like, oh, hey, but like, yeah, like the, the real hug, the hey, hug. And, uh, hey, hey. Hey, hey. That, no, that's I'm, what it's I'm, all about. I'm excited about it. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I'm sure everyone is going to dig hearing these stories um, behind the man. And, it was uh, fun. Thank you so much. And I, so, and I thank you for having me and for letting me tell the stories and stuff. And I can't wait to be shoulder to shoulder with you, shaking our phones together again soon. Sooner than later, baby. Hell yeah. All Let's right. do it. Okay. Bye. Bye, Stay. See you soon.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.